Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Luke Murrell. Luke, thank you very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Luke Murrell. Luke, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. So, look, how did you get started or involved in, in betting and racing? Um, look, I was sort of, I still remember as a young kid, I was um, I always played at a um, high level of cricket, and I, the old guys used to come and pick me up from juniors, and I remember sitting in the car, and this old guy used to always take me, and they'd always have the races on, and I used to think, how boring the races, you know, and um, it wasn't until later in life, at sort of year 11 and 12, when I should have been at school, I was spent more time in the tab, and... I just sort of developed from there. Ended up like like a lot of guys just decided to wander a horse, and the first one was a, a great experience, and the second one I got ripped off. And from there, I um I went and spent a little bit of time with Rob Waterhouse down in Sydney, and learned a hell of a lot there, and it sort of just blossomed from there. So you bought a few horses when you were a lot younger, and it didn't work out on one of them. Yeah, so like the first one was a lease that was just a to dip my toe in the water, and it was a it was a ripping horse, it was a horse called Nitrogen Narcosis, and um. It was never any any good in the scheme of things, but um, you've got a consistent horse and that give you a taste. And and then I went and spent, um, you know, for me at the time it was a lot of money, about ten grand. And um, as it turns out, I probably got ripped off. And I thought, well, I'll use a little bit of the the form stuff that I'd built up over the years to, we'll go and buy a cheap horse or two. And um, yeah, that's how it worked out. It was just to try and win a race and then turn it over and make a profit and go into the next one. And we sort of. We literally parlayed everything we made into trying to get that better better quality, and thankfully we kept hitting the mark, and yeah, it just took off. Interesting. So, how did you end up with Rob Waterhouse? Um, it was sort of I was doing um, finance and financial planning and stockbroking, and I just, you know, like a lot of guys, just sort of that wasn't the passion. I was, I thought I was quite good at it, but um, it was sort of wasn't the passion, and I knew there was something else. So, I um sat down one night and shot him an email and it was amazing he sort of come back straight away and very very smartest guy i've ever met in in racing and um very gracious with his time and 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 helped me a lot i suppose and basically just used to go down on a volunteer basis and jump on the bag or or help as a runner or whatever we needed to to do at the time and um yeah i learned a lot so what what type of what type of exposure did you get was it just race day and watching how he dealt with customers and clients and how he dealt with his money and how he would move the prices and things like that yeah look uh, just such a highly intelligent man and um it was sort of it, it fit my personality because I, I learned a lot just watching different things that he would do and um you know quite a private private fellow but um he, he sort of would let the odd little thing slip and i was like a sponge and sort of tried to 
learn as much as I can, you know. Um, you know he had some good guys around him, Mark Lambourne and um, Glenn Pollard and those type of guys that you sort of meet with, through association. And, um, yeah, it's like there's so much out there to learn, I think, and um, that hands-on experience and sort of being on the bag and those busy days where you go to a Scone Cup-type carnival really just opened your eyes. And he, he was such a, a dominant force there in the ring as far as... Um, He'd do some very clever things, and um, yeah, it just stuck with me, I suppose. So a lot of people these days want to just jump straight in and, and go, you know, hell for leather straight away. How important for you was doing an apprenticeship of sorts with someone like Rob and, and being the sponge that you mentioned, just to absorb a lot of, you know, information and, and different ways to do things? Well, I suppose I sort of I probably ended up going down every weekend for about three years, I suppose, and he used to see certain guys sort of come and go and. And um, I'd pick up snippets of information from Rob about sort of different, whether it was a form aspect or, or I, he, he's quite um, big on the, the mental side, I think, you know, because basically it is a battle between bookmaker and punter and different angles that, that you'd pick up. And I, I felt um, it was certainly a fascinating world. And But obviously, you know, he, he was very good with me. At one point he sort of said, you're going to have to come to Sydney and, and stand up in the ring or, you know, maybe from a cost point of view, you know, Betfair's your, your alternative. And um, that was a decision I, I made to to go the other way. But And then I thought, uh, having had the bad experience with the second horse, I thought, well, let, let's go and try and buy the odd horse where you think you can improve it and, and different things like that. And, yeah, things worked. So did you go into full-time punting from your experience down in the ring or what, what did you do next? No, look at at the at the time. Um, I had a had a young family, so it was it was very lots and lots of hours. But look, I, I felt that gives you that discipline. You know, you've got to do your videos, you've got to make your notes, different things like that. So that was very good, having to keep that up. And then, I suppose it's, it's just something that I'm always been one. I'm more than happy to put the time and and the hours into something and. I was basically working the two jobs, so that was fantastic, and it sort of continued. You know, um, the later on down the down the track, I sort of um, sold my finance business and um, have sort of been sort of punning in the bloodstock ever since. So, how did that get started? What sort of drew you to the, I guess, starting the business? And it sounds like it was a passion from the beginning, and you'd already dabbled in a little bit of it. But what was the impetus to sort of pull the trigger and, and go all in on it? Yeah, look, it was it certainly wasn't financial. Um, the, the sort of the money you can make the other world was was probably bigger and better. But it's just as a young guy, I was always been a competitive type of person, and um, I think that's why racing attracts so many different different people. You know, if you can't play sport at a not a professional level, even it, it, it can give you that that thrill of the the excitement and the chase and like no, like nothing else, and I suppose sport used to give take that void for a lot of young people. And once you can no longer do sport, well, I think that's why racing is so attractive to so many people because it's that competitive drive and spirit. Did you consider other trajectories, whether it was going back to bookmaking or, or trying your hand at punting or something else, or was it always that the mix of being able to analyse horse racing, you know, from a different angle and then going into the the bloodstock arena? Yeah, look, I suppose having had a bit of a sour taste after the second experience, 
it, it wasn't the only story. There was, it seemed like every person had had a um, a bad experience, and it, it was a funny. It's a funny industry because there's so many guys, more so the old school guys, I find that are that that have been brought up in the in the bloodstock or in the you know as trainers and whatnot, and there was never. There was never the thought to do the right thing for the long term. There was a lot of – I still remember experience. I, I won't mention the name, but we were with some trainers and we, we'd had had a big race success and his first words were, we've got to get out and find another horse. And I, I still remember saying, well, there's nothing there I like at the moment. And he said, it doesn't matter. You've got to get them another horse. You'll lose them otherwise. And I thought, well, that cannot be the right way to build a business long term. And look, I, I suppose you just – you know, it's not rocket science. You just try and do the best thing, and we've always tried to treat people like they were family, and hopefully they stick with you through the the good times and the bad times. But um, yeah, just it was that that initial bad experience. I, I thought well, there's a real gap here to you know, lots of guys like the horses, like a pun, and um, we, we started out out cheap type horses, and it's sort of built from there. But I just think just doing the right thing by people um, long term. That's probably helped set us up and um we still try and do that and yeah it was it was a great grounding sort of having had that bad experience and, and you got to see different aspects on how tra- trainers run their own business and um even today there's some out there that you think you know they're, they're still back in the 1970s and 80s and and there's other guys out there that just want to give you that much information it's not funny so uh just getting that happy medium and making people happy did you crystallize or distill uh, all those different things into a mission statement in the beginning that you wanted to achieve from the business? No, not really. Look, the sort of the business just sort of evolved. We started off with a, I think it was a two thousand dollar mare that we um, we bought off a trainer that we thought hadn't been placed great, and it was just a matter of if you've got some friends, um, get them involved, and basically we ended up with ten people and. We won two in a row, and then we sold her up to North Queensland for 25. And the guys were like, "How easy is this?" And we sort of said, "Right, okay, we'll use the same money." And we went and bought a $5,000 horse and left the money in the kit. And same result, we won three in a row with him, and and actually got him into Singapore for for quite a bit of money. And um, sort of, you know, you, you guys that were a bit loyal, they they sort of stuck with you and just built built from that way. And we sort of focused on the on the tried horse. The the yearling side of things were, and still are, just a, an expensive lottery ticket, really. And that while there's a demand there now, it's um, you know, I'd, I'd always see a person that's never had a horse before. I'd rather see them go into a tried horse just to get that experience, you know, because most guys don't understand the having to have that patience of 12 or 18 months when you're buying a yearling, and you can put all that time and money into them, and they can be no good, you know, where. If you go and buy a tried horse, I suppose people can see what they're buying. You know, they're generally at the races four, six, eight, twelve weeks time, and for a lot of guys, all they want to do is have a bit of a, a yahoo and go go to the races with their mates, have a few drinks, and see their horse go around. So, so then it was sort of our job just to try and find that one where that had a little bit of scope and open for improvement, I suppose. So, how do you go about that? Do you go and visit the horses? Do you just do? you know, typical horse racing form and handicapping to identify something with a fair bit of upside? What's some of the things that you look at or can, can share with us in the early stages that you consider to be valuable? Yeah, look, um, I, I think it's just no real rocket science to it there. Um, I'm not the greatest with the computers, but I've got a fairly 
decent sort of database that constantly we probably I, I probably do 60 65 hours a week now in in video work and and whatnot so that's a a large portion of it but amazing later on we sort of expanded and went to europe and that type of thing and the guys still in europe can't believe that you're buying a horse just because it ran two seconds quicker than say another horse over the same distance on the same day they think it's just crazy where time forms gospel over there and everything else is just a bit witchcrafty so (laughs) that's been able to provide us an edge and i think for the the guy that's prepared to do his videos and focus, say, on one country, whether it's France or England, England's a bit tougher, but France or, or Germany especially, you've only got a couple of tracks there. And with times, if you've got a, a basic grasp of times, you could make a, a serious, serious living just um, playing over there in, in that type of arena um, just because there's only a limited amount of uh, tracks and, and horses and whatnot. And like I said... Like Germany's lucky to take a final time for the race, and they can sometimes be out by four or five seconds. So that means there's a lot of work you've got to put in and do your own times. I get the tapes sent, so I've got the the raw vision as opposed to the edited vision that you might see on the internet. But we um we run them through a system, and you know like it's pretty pretty advanced now where we've got sort of the, the club's been good enough to put up sort of markers on the track, and we've got our own. You know I'm very big on sectional times and whatnot, so. I've got my own historical times per furlong and different things like that that give you that edge that can sort of highlight a, a good run from a bad run. The biggest thing Rob Waterhouse always taught me, he said, was the eye, the eye lies, and um, I've always sort of remembered that. And you can see some amazing performances over there, and you think, Jesus, I'm keen to buy this horse, but you pull the race apart for the day, and there's just no substance to it, and Look, we sort of see some of the competition go and buy those horses, but that's a, an edge that I wouldn't feel comfortable putting my own money into unless I had that sort of data. So there's a lot of time that goes into it and keep it updated, but it's certainly worthwhile when you're looking for that needle in the haystack and that little gem that everyone's missed. And But we've had some fantastic results. You know, we've bought fillies that have won maidens and have gone on and been undefeated or, or won oakses and that type of thing. And, you know, financially, it, it can be a a really good return in that aspect because some of the, the 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 prices that these guys in the bloodstock world are prepared to pay for a group one winner is just phenomenal so lots of tedious work but there can be a payoff at the end so is this a unique business looking around the world and trying to identify horses you know relatively early in their careers let's say that you think they can come over to australia and be successful or as you mentioned competitors before are there a whole bunch or is there only a couple that are doing it yeah, look, I, I would only consider there's probably only there's a mob in um, America called Team Valor. Um, they've probably had some really good success over the the previous few sort of oh, couple of decades actually. But they were probably the first one. They're not as probably as active as what, what they once used to be. And you've obviously got a, a mob like OTI in that. But look, I, I sort of I see certain things from my point of view. You know, like we went to buy a horse earlier in the year that um, he had sensational form and through over the years we've sort of built up our own little contacts on the ground and I often find the, the stable lads or the foreman knows more than the, the trainers. And there's one particular horse, the competition's just actually bought in the last month. We were really keen to buy him about three months ago and um, he just had two very dodgy runs and 
it wasn't until we inquired and spoke to the, the guy that we know there, he, the horse had basically developed this fascination with a donkey and that was the stable pet. And whenever the horse ran bad, the donkey actually didn't go to the races with him. And every, every time he won, the donkey went to the races. So that was a little peculiar thing that, <laughs> you know, you're, you're talking 600 euros for the horse. So that's the best part of a million bucks Aussie for us. Look, without that sort of knowledge, we would have steamed in and bought the horse. But there's a lot to it. It's, it's not just, oh, well, that's got good form and whatnot, like certain characteristics and traits. And anyway, long story, we we're going to try and buy the, the donkey as well, which we were able to do. But the flight over was going to be another 60000 for the donkey. So we just, in the end, we just decided, look, obviously, quirky horse mentally, we'll, we'll let them let him pass. And um, I'll be. Very, very interested to see how he goes over here in the next sort of 12 months. So, yeah. Hopefully the donkey's coming with and a million-dollar <laughs> nah, decision they, they based on... they didn't buy it. Oh, okay. <laughs> they didn't buy it and they didn't know about it. So um, I'm very curious to see. It's amazing. So, yeah, look, as far as competition, sort of... I think over the years it's just sort of developed. We've got it to a stage now where I've sort of got a really, really solid database on everything from Italy, France, Germany... Ireland, Japan, obviously Australia and New Zealand. I, I don't. The it's just sort of developed, and I suppose having that bit of a form background has really helped develop it. But it's so detailed now. I'd be petrified to buy a horse without it. So it's sort of probably one of those businesses that's got a bit of a moat around it because to actually get in and try and do it, unless you're prepared to go and get the last sort of ten years worth of information and and even know where to go, go to get it. It's pretty unique like that. And it's no guarantee of success, but, geez, it, it helps a hell of a lot. You see the numbers. You want more control. On the Betfair Exchange, you can back, lay, trade, and set your own odds. So join the world's largest peer-to-peer betting platform. Get into the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. You mentioned before the foreman. Trainers talk a lot on on television and they'll talk during the week and they'll talk post-track work and they'll talk, you know, at the start of a campaign to explain where they're headed with the horse. Do you value trainers' opinion when it comes to knowing a good horse and and trusting that this is the right one to buy for you? Not really. Look, I I suppose when I look back at all the horses that haven't lived up to my expectations, it's it's when we've, um, uh, can I say, trusted other people and not that they've done anything wrong by us. They've just their opinion wasn't as informed, or there was no facts behind it. So I'm very analytical type person, which I think um, can take sometimes that emotional side of things out of the equation. And you know, we know yourself. We're, we're, there's certain trainers in Australia and around the world that every horse is going to win the slipper, and every horse is going to win the win the Derby. And I suppose just you've just got to read, ignore some of that information and and see what the facts sort of tell you. And, and there'll be times when you get it wrong where, you know, the horse that they've spruced has gone on and done it, but that's one out of 100. It's, and, I, and I'm happy for those sort of things to, to pass me by. I'd rather buy when we've got everything sort of lined up. And I suppose you're tipping other people into it and they're ringing. There's a, there's a point where they actually trust you. And Unless I'm fully sold on it, you, you can't sort of sell those horses unless you're fully sold on it yourself. So, and the only way I can do that is through that sort of information and, and database. But um, places like Japan and that they've got 
some of the most amazing information. I'm surprised there's not more betting syndicates set up in Japan, to be honest, because that information they provide, I've seen the Hong Kong stuff, but the, the, the Japanese stuff is a, just a different level. And a lot of that information is free stuff that, you know, even for a computer guy that's not very smart like myself, it, it's quite easy to, to mine and, and develop something there. But that Japanese market is just untapped. Um, the ability to buy out of there is is extremely impossible. But from a betting side of view, which is obviously what your podcast's about, um, if if anyone was prepared to, to put the time in there, there's so much historical information available. And, you know, I've got sort of 10 years, and it's not something I got specially built, you know, like it was it was freely available. I've got 10 years sectional data on every single furlong of every single track there. And when you can benchmark that, that's... Uh, that's a really amazing sort of tool and would give you a lot of confidence from a betting betting side of things. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what you mentioned before about trainers and a lot of people probably know about the endowment effect and essentially overvaluing what you have and, and those trainers sort of thinking more highly of their own horses. Do you have that same issue you've got to battle with in terms of trying to be objective and disassociate yourself with the horse and the horses you own or how do you go about doing that? Yeah, it's interesting. We we had a horse win on um, Saturday night in in Germany, and the trainer said for a while that he thinks it's his best two year old. And look, its first start to come out and ran fourth, and um, Blind Freddy could see it didn't run the trip. The trainer won't hear of it, and then he came out on the weekend and and won by three or four lengths. But when you break down the race, there was no substance there at all. So that's a little bit of a battle to try and convince the trainer. Hey, I know what he's showing you at home, but I suppose it's just having a little bit of knowledge about the horse. You know, he, he's quite a developed horse already. He's a two-year-old. His family's all two-year-old. So you're more than likely saying the horse is going to be no good. It, this is this is probably the best he's going to be, and um, despite what he might show you at home. So for sort of, we're, we're pretty lucky. We, we do stick to our main couple of trainers, um, and I suppose over the years, part of what I do is I actually help a few trainers and jockeys with form and placement and that type of thing. And there's a level of trust and confidence that gets built up over the time. So it's now at a stage where there's a lot more confidence if, if we do put a line through a horse or, or talk a horse up that, Hey, maybe we are on the right track because it's not opinion. It's, it's factual and it's come off the data. So yeah, that's, um, Trainers certainly obviously can see, especially with your own race stock, a lot more than what we will after one or two runs. But more often or not, I, I do find that, yeah, sometimes they can overrate them, especially in my German mate. But, um, yeah, that's that's where we're at there. But the it's such a big thing to be able to trust you. You, you know, you're in business with them. And it's primarily why we've got so many horses, which with the two main trainers, because they're... they're um, their honesty is is amazing, and and they, and they really know their stuff. So that helps too from a placement point of view, and and getting the best out of the horse. And what about jockeys? Do they have quote unquote a good feel for for a horse? Have you found any jockeys that can tell you or have you value their opinion essentially? Um, most of them you can disregard. Um, I find a, a, I think it's very misleading. You know, if, obviously, if the horse doesn't feel right, well, that's that's valuable. But oftentimes, and, you know, you still see it in the media now where the, the jockeys get off and say, look, it, it wants further or it wants shorter. But 
the data certainly doesn't support that, and, and when they try them, they often, more often than not fail. So there's some very good guys out there. Um, Chris Lees has got one or two blokes there that they rarely say anything, but when they do, they're just impossibly accurate. It's it's not funny. Um, so I think a lot of those stables around, there, there is certain guys there. I know Darren Weir um, respects John Allen, amazing almost will be blind faith whatever John says is, is gospel you know and those type of things I think are, are a big help to a, a stable but for us yeah often race day, race day jockeys they, they jump on and off all the time and um, they might only sit on the horse a couple of times and probably not as helpful as it as you might think you know. So why do you think your business is so successful is it diligence and discipline and uh, and sticking to the process, or is there some sort of magic bullet that you've got that no one else does? Um, I think the magic bullet is just the historical information that I'm able to provide people. So when you do, for a better word, talk a horse up, it, it's not just opinion. It's um, you, you, you can, I can provide them a snapshot of some information, and that information can validate their own opinion on what they see themselves. So... It's amazing though. Like, I could offer a horse that's won a race by ten lengths, say at Deauville, and it looks fantastic, but they can have no substance. And it was one in particular, um, one of the guys in Melbourne, one of the competition. They bought a horse, and it's just no good. The horse, like in the scheme of things, it had twelve starts. It was never going to get any better. And the best that it, it had done on benchmark was about about par. So. At best, they're probably buying a Saturday horse, and they've paid seven hundred thousand for it. And we had a horse um, just recently um, going to Chris Waller, actually, one we've done a little bit different, and he was a maiden. He's only had the two starts, but he hadn't actually won a race. And because people couldn't see the horse running away from a field or, and winning, uh, uh, I had two guys that ended up going with the other horse. I didn't know them personally, but they actually spoke to me afterwards and said, "Oh, this horse won by ten and so visually, it's that old saying that the eye lies um, can be very misleading. And sometimes people just want to see that type of thing as opposed to buying buying the horse that hasn't won a race and run second or third. And and I suppose that's where, after a while, your reputation and your clients sort of um, will stand by you. If, if we really get behind a horse, it's, um, yeah, it's generally not an issue. So, but, um, yeah... It's it's so hard for people. Look, at the amount of imports that have come to Australia over the last sort of six or seven years is phenomenal, and um, some work and some don't. And you know, you still get the occasional horse that gets here and just doesn't like the training. You know, I think a lot of trainers have forgot that some of these horses, in human terms, they've been training with the Ethiopians all their life, and then to bring them over here and train them like Usain Bolt. Some of them are going to love it, and you know we got a horse, Big Duke. We sort of bought him off rubbish form in England, and always looked the part. And I saw a few things there that helped us, and always thought he was going to be a good one. But he's one that's just thrived under. Well, I'm happy to do any type of training. Where there's other horses that get there, and they just turn it up. You know, but if they can't keep up as soon as those gates open, sometimes they just they lose that desire and heart. And Andreas Waller who's our trainer in Germany, he's he's just completely obsessed with if you don't have them right mentally, you haven't got a horse. And um, he's done some amazing things over the years with different horses that we've had. And 
getting them right that way. And I think that's such a, a big thing, but being able to buy a horse that mentally is going to stand up to, you know, our, our racing is very much jump, jump and go and pull up and then sprint home. And some horses don't appreciate that. There's, there's some very good horses over there in Europe, but there's just some, I, I, you just know if they come here, they, they just wouldn't handle it where others, you know, they, they just take it in their stride and push on. So are the, the German horses or the Irish and the UK horses, are they are they better suited to the style of racing over there? And when they come here, they may not have been as successful. And I know, you know, there hasn't been hundreds and hundreds come for Caulfield and Melbourne Cups, but a few of them have been, you know, favourites or short in the market and haven't performed as well as their starting price might suggest on occasion. What's your sort of thoughts and opinions on coming over to a different style of racing here in Australia? Yeah, um, I think a lot of it's got got to do with what I call race shape. So there's some horses, even here in Australia, they they perform when, say, for example, there's no speed and it's a 400-metre spring home and they just look like they're the next far lap. And then there's other horses, they only perform when there's a really strong gallop early and middle stages and then they're able to finish off. And that race shape is very, very different in each of those countries you've just mentioned. Um, I find of all the horses, the the higher risk horses are the French horses because their whole style of racing, whether it's 1,200 metres or 3,200 metres, they'll jump their horses out and they they actually won't start racing. They just hack along until the 400 and they sprint home. So... There's a lot of French horses that have come here with, on paper, good credentials, but they've just been absolute, you know, the ambulance has hit them a couple of times. You know, that's how slow they've gone because they haven't been able to adapt where probably the Japanese style of racing is is the most similar. Um, They probably go a little bit faster than what we do in our races, but the Japanese horses, I find, are um, physically much stronger they've got a lot more bone we you, you do get a lot of european and english horses that are that are 420 or 30 kilos and they've got these little um pretzel legs on them and they just get here and it jars up through the through their legs and they just don't handle the the climate and the conditions where the japanese they've got these big you know legs like arnold schwarzenegger on them and they just they can just thrive on anything but you know look the amazing thing is, like, and, and a lot of people forget, they they see the, the suffix after the name of the horse and they think, oh, it's a Japanese horse, it must be a ripper. They've got some horribly slow horses over there and, you know, there's been a couple bought recently that I just shake my head at, you know, like a couple that raced on the weekend, they've paid three million bucks plus and at best they're going to be a listed horse, you know. But again, when you're doing the form when we had black caviar winning all those races, the horse that used to run second to her was, was not necessarily the, the second best horse in the world, you know, and something's got to run second. And I find a lot of people forget that fact, you know, just because you've run second to Winks doesn't mean you're the, the second best horse in the world type scenario. And a lot of people fall into that trap when they're buying horses and they're saying, Oh, well, it ran second to this horse. That horse is a superstar. We must be pretty good as well. Well, there's some fairly ordinary horses out there. Like, Horse like Red Excitement, who's been a ripper, you'd love to own him, but there's no way he was ever the second or third best horse behind Winks. And, you know, a couple of times he, he gave Winks a scare and something's got to run second is the theory. So 
just because they do doesn't mean they're any good. Do you have any purchases that stand out to you or maybe some that you passed on that was a superstar one day? Anything that, that jumps out to you when uh, when you're looking back on it? Nothing that we've really passed on. The, the most frustrating thing, I suppose, is buying or trying to buy a horse and I've got to admit, because some of these horses can be expensive, we're extremely... I'm an old woman, basically, when it comes to vetting the horse. If if there's any sort of hint of an issue, I'm more than happy to let them go. Yeah, there's been... There's probably been two or three horses that have gone on and been champions that you just think, why didn't I take the risk? But, you know, of course, you don't remember all the other horses that you failed that never went on and did anything, but... Yeah, there's, there's been a couple there that, yeah, if only you'd um, push the button on that one, it, it could be very different. But look, that's you, you just got to stick to the, again, very factual. And if, if the vet's got some type of question mark on it standing up, more than happy, just we'll just let it go. And there's always another horse. There's always somewhere, someone, somewhere, someone going to sell the right horse or it'll be available at some stage. So what continues to drive you to keep doing this and keep finding the best horses that may not be the most flashy but are going to be the, the best value or best performed? Yeah, just that um, i got a goal. I want to win 10 Melbourne Cups. And, look, that's that's the the main aim. But that thrill, Jake, whether it's a, a Tari Maiden or a, or a Group 1 winner, it's you cannot describe it to people unless you've actually been there. And um, look, that—that's uh, the good thing about this. It'll just continue to, to be like that. It's sort of, I'll never get sick of that—that that feeling. And you know, the enjoyment. We we get a lot of horse, uh, a lot of clients from other syndicators that have had no luck. And you know, some of the stories turn your hair grey. Just how much bad luck people have had, or uh, maybe not been advised as well as they could have been. And um, I get more thrill out of now seeing people win, and you know, as soon as, as soon as we can get our horses to to pay for themselves, um, there's no there's no pressure on on me. But um, until we do that, well, that's always the the drive of you know, let's get this horse where it owes us nothing, and then we can go to the next one type thing. So we've got some really really nice horses there, and just like anything, you just need a little bit of luck. And over the the years, I've probably bought five or six that that would have been champions and world-class horses that for whatever reason had had no luck and that's always the drive that makes you turn the computer on and, and do another couple of hours of video study because um there's a lot of money to be made for the right horse and um you know just that enjoyment of, of seeing people have some success when they haven't had it previously so before i let you go i want to run through a couple of horses and i just want to get your first thoughts that jump into your mind 10 20 30 seconds whatever it might be the first one is protectionist yeah, uh, absolute champion. Um, he's just a he was he was a once every eight or nine year type horse, you know. He's uh, he's a beauty. Lucia Valentina. Lucia, she she was just an amazing little war horse that amazingly well handled by the trainer and Chris Lees, and yeah, she she's always going to be one of those horses that um, she could have even been a lot better than what she ended up being. Mawingo? Mawingo, he was um he was one of our first better ones that obviously won a won a good group one. He's um he's doing a really good job at stud but 
Yeah, he, he he was a beauty for us. You know, as an owner, you like those horses that just give their all. Um, even if they're not the best horse in the race, they always try their best. And um, we've got some horses there that, in the scheme of things, are absolutely no good. And, you know, they've won 150, 250,000 just because they, they try all the time. Where you get other horses that just a bit mentally not there with you, and um, they're the frustrating ones. Lucas Cranach? He could have been an absolute world champion at anything. He was an absolute freak, and I'll go to my grave thinking he was, at one point, probably the best horse that I'll ever buy, whether I buy another 10,000 horses. You know, he was a freak. And have you got any at the moment that you're really excited about that are still racing? I know La Romaine ran pretty well uh, recently against a pretty good horse, but yeah. are there any others that, that stand out at the moment? I've, I bought a horse this year for the Melbourne Cup, Jake, called Torsador. Again, I'm not a big believer in time form, but they've got him third or fourth best stayer in the world. And if he if he brings his um, European form, he's going to run race this weekend. But um, if he brings his European form, he'll win the Melbourne Cup by four or five lengths. He's he's an absolute weapon as far as a stayer is concerned. Yeah, he he's he's the one I'm most excited about, just because. If he's here fit and healthy on the day, I think he just wins. And, you know, that's not easy to say, but it's sort of... I, I, I'm generally not one that gets carried away with him, but he's a he's a star, that horse. He's a, he's a weapon. It's a nice one to follow. Yeah, um, and I've got, a, I've got one there. He'll look a bit average on paper, this prep, but we bought a Japanese horse called Denon Liberty. He was favourite for the Stradbroke, and as luck would have it, we were first emergency and didn't get a run. And then coming back on the truck, he just cut his leg and had to have an operation. So we were behind fitness-wise, and his first run, you'll see on paper, he got beat quite away in the Menzie, but he was six or seven weeks of training only at that stage, and then he went to Adelaide the other week, and that was only eight weeks of training, and he probably should have run third. And he's a horse, I'd say, in two runs' time, can win a group one, and I think he can run top two or three in a Cox Plate. He's, he's a serious horse, that one. And, of course, you know what? I'm very, very confident with Brave Smash. I think he's ticking over really good. I think he'll run top three in the Everest again. And Yeah, they're, they're the three that I've sort of got the highest hopes for. Some really nice other horses there, but they'd be the three. If you're a punting, I'd be fine because they're all going to be prices. And Yeah, they're just, just proper world-class horses, you know. They're the ones that get you excited. So before I let you go, I just want to ask, what do you tell you know a first-timer who gives you a call or who bumps into the races or whatever it might be and are interested in this type of thing. Do you have a suggested pathway for those people or what's the best piece of advice you could give them? Look, the most common pathway for the industry is to go and buy a, a little share in a, in a baby horse when the yearling sales pop up at January or February. To me, I feel that's probably the wrong way if you've never had a horse before, unless you're from a horse background and, and you've got the patience of Job. To me, I think you'd be better to go and buy just a cheap tried horse. You know, we we still have the cheap ones from time to time. Get get in and get that experience because you'll be going to the races within four, six, eight weeks, and that'll give you that taste. Hey, this is fun and I like it, or hey, it's not as good as I I first thought. Where you go and buy a yearling, you've got twelve or eighteen months to wait. You're generally going to spend probably more money than what you would on a on a tried horse and. Some of these tried horses, you know, you can buy a city grade horse that's going to run around for 100, 120,000 for four and five grand a share. And if 
if the average yearling got to that level, you'd be thrilled, you know. So I, I think just be a bit patient and find the right tried horse. Um, race it with some guys. You know, we try and have a no dickhead policy. It's a, it's a big thing with us because you basically uh, are taking a punt that, that the trainer knows what they're doing and they can place the horse right. And with um, with the right stables, you, you see a really good return with those type of horses. And the ones that we try and buy are, are ones that we think we can actually win the purchase price back in the first prep or two. So if you can hit the target there, you end up with a free horse. I think that's a great first-timer's way to experience it. And you haven't had to wait. And um, the whole society these days is a bit like that. They want instant gratification as opposed to having the patience. And I think that's the, the safest way for a first-timer um, rather than going to buy the yearling. Look, you'll never get a winks buying that way. But at the same time for your first horse, just um, get in and get the experience and see what see if you like it or not first and then... If you do, then you can go down the yearling path. Sage advice. Luke, thanks very much for coming on the podcast and uh, and best of luck for the, the rest of the spring carnival. Yeah, much appreciated, Jake. It's a bloody absolute fantastic podcast and um, I know it's very um, big amongst my mates, so it's, um, yeah, much appreciated.